Hello, church. Pastor Adrian here. Um, I hope and pray that as you are experiencing uh, very unique circumstances wherever you are, uh, that uh, you are drawing close to God at this time and knowing that He is with you. Um, today we will be in Revelation chapter 16. We will be continuing in our series uh, through the seven last plagues uh, at the end of time. And uh, today we will just be focusing on one of the plagues, and that is the sixth plague. Here we have uh, so much information And there are so many events taking place here, it's important that we stop. And you'll notice as you go through the plagues here in Revelation 16, that some of them are very brief, only a verse long. Uh, They're quite uh, frank, they're very upfront about what is happening. But as we get to the last two plagues, John adds more detail, and he adds more prophecy that needs to be decoded. And he does that for a very important reason. Uh, And so we're going to look here today at plague number six in Revelation 16, and I will read Revelation 16 and verse 12. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming quickly as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, as we wrestle with this passage and uh, what it means, God, uh, for the things that are coming upon the earth and what it means for us today, uh, we ask and pray that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit those who are listening and watching uh, virtually and by phone, I pray that where they are, that your spirit would speak to their hearts. And please guide me, Lord, that these would be your words and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Revelation, we have some of the most uh, interesting verses in all of the book of Revelation. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we do Revelation seminars as a church, this, this is one of the highlights that we often put on our flyers. What is the Battle of Armageddon? Where will it take place and how will it happen? And as the Bible describes it here, as we see that the, sat- the Satan's forces and God's forces are, are massing one against another, and they're preparing for this great battle, people want to know where is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? What, what, what part of the world will it happen in Israel? What countries will be involved in this great battle and this great war? So it's, it's a study that is of great interest to a lot of people. But as we start to break it down here, we will realize that it's not what so many people think that it is. Uh, 
It's not this literal battle that is going to happen between nations. No, it's much deeper than that. But we do see here that God and his forces and Satan and his forces, they are preparing for a great battle. They are preparing for a final conflict that will bring an end to all of this this great controversy as we know it. And so it's important for us to understand what is happening here. Now, as these two forces are preparing for battle, it's important how they are preparing for that last battle because the way one prepares for battle determines the outcome. If one is caught by surprise or if one is too weak or if one is is unaware of what their enemy is doing, then it could lead to catastrophe. So how one prepares for a battle that they are engaging in is very important. And here we see in Revelation 16 and this sixth plague, this great battle that is about to take place, that God is using truth, righteousness, and his righteous judgments, and he's using love that is manifested on the cross to fight his battle. That's one side. But on the other side, we see that Satan is using pride, deception, and pure evil as his motivation for his battle. It's, his, it's why he is going to war in the first place. Now, as we break down here uh, what is happening and what John describes to us, uh, we have to understand what is this drying up of the river Euphrates? What is this uh, way that is being prepared for the kings of the east? Now, most of the book of Revelation, a majority of it, is echoes from the Old Testament from Old Testament prophecies, uh, from Old Testament stories and narratives, really from the history of God's people, all the way back to the time of Moses. And so, um, so as we try to understand what is happening here, we have to know where can we find back in the Bible this story about a drying up of the river Euphrates and, and these, these kings from the east. Well, this is a very unique event in history. And it happened when the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon back in 539 BC. We can read about this back in Daniel chapter 5, when the Babylonians were uh, having this uh, drunken orgy one night, uh, knowing that the Medes and the Persians were outside trying to storm the gates of Babylon uh, so that they could get in and they could uh, put them under submission. And so if we go back and we look in history, we see that there was a very famous general who was the head of the Medo-Persian Empire. His name was Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And he defeated Babylon that night in 539 BC. Now, according to Herodotus, 
who is a famous Greek historian, Cyrus did something very interesting. You see, when he and his army, when they came to Babylon, the night that they were trying to take it, they found that the walls of Babylon were high and that they were strong and they were basically impenetrable. There was no way that they could get inside the great city of Babylon. And furthermore, the river Euphrates ran through, right through basically the center of the city of Babylon. And they had a gate, they had, I'm sorry, a wall that went all the way around, even over the river Euphrates. So they had water coming into the city, and they had enough food to last them for many years. So usually what an army would do as they were advancing on another uh, country or city is they would make siege mounds and, and uh, they would try to, uh, you know, uh, try to get in. If they could not, then they would simply wait out those who were waiting inside because eventually they would have to come out. Uh, they would run out of food. They would run out of water. They would run out of the things that they needed. But not so with the Babylonians. They were ready to to wait out the Medes and the Persians for years. And so Cyrus the Great knew that they could not simply wait out the Babylonians. So he did something very unique. Uh, Herodotus, the historian, tells us that what he actually did is Cyrus the Great had his men divert the Euphrates River into a nearby lake. They, they dug channels so that they diverted the Euphrates River and it basically dried up and was not running through the city of Babylon anymore. And so when the river was low enough, uh, the men of Cyrus's army were able to go underneath the wall and they were able to sneak in they were able to unlock the gates, and then the, uh, the floodgates were open, so to speak, and the army rushed in, and they killed the Babylonians. So this is how Cyrus defeated the Babylonians that night. And he conquered them because the Babylonians, they were overconfident, and they thought that nobody could get into their city, and they, and they were wrong. But you see, there's more to the story than just what Herodotus writes. There's more to the story than just what uh, history tells us. In Isaiah 40, 45 and verse 1, Isaiah actually predicted the fall of Babylon by a great leader named Cyrus. Cyrus is actually referred to in Isaiah 45.1 as God's Messiah. Now, the Medes and the Persians, they came from the east. The Mede and the Persian Empire was east of Babylon. And in Isaiah, God also prophesies that kings from the rising of the sun would come and they would defeat the Chaldeans. Now, where is the rising of the sun? That is in the east. Now, all of this actually tells us that Cyrus was a type of Christ. It actually calls him God's anointed or Messiah in verse 45. 
uh, in chapter 45, I'm sorry. I believe it is in uh, chapter 41 that it says that these, these rulers or these kings would come from the rising of the sun and they would defeat the Chaldeans. And we know from the book of Luke and other places that Jesus himself is called the rising sun. Or he is the son of the morning. He is the son, uh, the great, the great uh, light of heaven. So all of this helps us to understand that Cyrus was actually a type of Christ. And he, he was coming from the east and he represents Jesus Christ himself. He was, he was a type of Messiah. Now, Cyrus, as he came in to Babylon, as he conquered the city, as he liberated the city from from the tyranny of the Babylonians, he did something else that was very important. He did something else that God takes note of, and God actually predicted that he would do. He actually liberated the Jews from Babylon. After Cyrus defeated Babylon and he incorporated the Babylonian Empire into his kingdom, into his empire, he actually made laws, uh, humanitarian laws that that protected uh, the people who dwelt there. He was much more of a humane ruler and emperor than many kings of his time. Cyrus the Great was a type of liberator for many people, including the Jews. And under Cyrus the Great, the Jews in captivity were allowed to return to their homeland. They were no longer captives, but they were free. They were liberated by this king from the east. So we see here in Revelation chapter 16 that the drying up of the Euphrates River symbolizes the downfall of in-time Babylon. But it also symbolizes God preparing to deliver his people from their enemies. Because it was under King Cyrus, the king from the east, that they were allowed to return to their homeland to the promised land. So God uses this imagery from Isaiah. He uses this imagery from history of Cyrus drying up the Euphrates River, coming in to conquer Babylon. He uses this imagery as a symbol of what Christ is getting ready to do in delivering his end time people in the times in the very end of time. And so those especially well-trained, you know, Jews who knew the Bible, who knew their history, this this would automatically click in their minds. They would they would have understood they would have understood what God was trying to say. And so church this should give us encouragement. Because you know, it's very interesting that as we read through Revelation and we read about the plagues, we see that there's this conflict between Satan and his people and God and his people. Now, I don't know about you, where you're at, where you're living, 
But at this time right now, I actually, I'm not suffering persecution by any world governments. I'm not suffering persecution by my local government. I'm not uh, suffering persecution for worshiping on Sabbath or for reading my Bible or for being a Christian. So right now, this is something that seems kind of distant to me. Like, this is going to happen in the future, but how does this affect me right now? And the truth is, church, that living in this world, that living in this time, that living in the age that we are all uh, in today, that in many ways we are living in Babylon right now. Just look at the world around you. Look at the evil of people, of, of, of men and women in this world. Look at the greed and the harassment. Look at the godlessness of people around us. Look at the bombardment that we are all in having to endure through technology and through many other ways to seduce and entice us to live like Babylonians. Yes, people, we are under attack by the enemy daily. And so I want to ask the question, how are we living today as God's people? Because one of the main points of this message here in in the sixth plague is that there's a great conflict that is taking place between good and evil, and people have to choose sides. People have to choose in all of their daily decisions Whose side will they be on? The side of Babylon or the side of heaven? The side of the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, as, as the passage goes on, it intensifies that idea of people having to make a decision between God and Satan. As we continue reading here in verse 13... John, John sees something very interesting. He says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God. Almighty. Now, why is John seeing these three spirits like unclean frogs? Why is he using the imagery of a frog to show the the kind of spirits that are coming out of these three characters? Now, it's very interesting that the frog is one of the last plagues in Exodus during the time when God delivered his people Israel out of Egypt. This is the last plague that Pharaoh's magicians were able to copy. You remember the first plague was turning the blood, the water, the waters of the great river Nile into blood. And the magicians actually uh, counterfeited that or copied that plague. 
And there were other plagues that the magicians copied. And as they were copying the first few plagues that Moses sent upon Egypt, this was a kind of a deception. This was a kind of tool that the magicians were using to harden Pharaoh's heart and to harden the heart of the Egyptians because they thought, well, the God of the Israelites, he is not stronger than our God. See, anything that his God does... Moses' God does, our God can do as well. So the first few plagues, God allowed the magicians to actually counterfeit Moses' first plagues. But as the plagues began to intensify and get worse, then the magicians were no longer able to copy the plagues especially the plagues of of hail, uh, the killing of the firstborn. By this time, Pharaoh's magicians were exhausted, and they said, this is the hand of God. We can do nothing. But God allowed them, however they did it, out of their deception, their their, uh, uh, sophisticated artistry, they copied some of those plagues. And the last one that they were able to copy was the plague of the frogs. So this last plague that Pharaoh's magicians were able to reproduce, it imitated the miracles of Moses. It imitated those miracles that Moses did with his staff. They did this through deceptive artistry, and they deceived the minds of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. These frog-like demons represent the last work of Satan to counterfeit the work of God and his message. So when, it's, when he, John sees these, this unclean spirit coming out of the mouth of these, the dragon and, and the beast and the false prophet, they're doing something very uh, deceptive that is changing people's minds or hardening people's minds toward God. Now, we don't have time to break down each of the characters in verse 13, but as good Bible students, most of you, you already know uh, who these characters are. The dragon represents Satan himself. Um, The beast is the beast from Revelation 13. That's the papacy. And the false prophet is the earth beast. It's another name for the earth beast of Revelation 13 chapter 13, that is none other than the U.S. in Bible prophecy. But by the time we get to Revelation chapter 16, it's taking more religious, it's taking more spiritual overtones. It's no longer the earth beast. Now John calls it the false prophet. Now this is very religious, and it represents false or wayward Protestantism that follows after Mother Babylon, that follows after Mother Beast. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 17. That's the very next vision after the plagues fall. John sees this vision of mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots of all the abominations of the earth. Now, we don't have time to break down, you know, all of these characters and and show where the Bible uh, points out 
where each and every one of them are. We just we need to know who they are, and we need to know that there is a very deceptive work that is being done by these characters, and it involves uh, this spiritual deception that takes place. Listen to this uh, as Ellen White writes on this end-time deception that happens. She says here, Fearful sights of a supernatural character will soon be revealed in the heavens. In token of the power of miracle-working demons, the spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to fasten them in deception and urge them on to unite with Satan in his last struggle against the government of heaven. By these agencies, rulers and subjects will be alike deceived. Persons will arise pretending to be Christ himself and claiming the title and worship which belong to the world's Redeemer. They will perform wonderful miracles of healing and will profess to have revelations from heaven contradicting the testimony of the scriptures. Wow. Let me read that last sentence. They will perform wonderful miracles of healing and will profess to have revelations from heaven contradicting the scriptures. So this, these demons that go out to deceive, they're not going to go out and, and do uh, supernatural things that will just, you know, uh, show their great power, you know, um, like superheroes that we see in movies where people are in fear of, of how great they are. No, no, no. The miracles that they will perform will actually be good things, like healing people. The things that they do, they'll actually try to unite the world together. So they're going to be performing these miracles that actually look good, that actually look almost godly. But they will be contradicting the very scriptures of God. And this is why, this is why it will be so deceptive. How can... Sabbath-keeping people say that this character who's healing people, uh, that, that he is not an agent of God. I mean, look at all the wonderful things that he's doing. All these Sabbath-keepers, these people who choose to follow the Bible, they're, they're just fanatics. That's all that they are. If they would just see these wonderful miracles that are being done, and the whole world will wonder after the beast. And you know, something that's very interesting also about these three frogs that are, that are going out to the world deceiving, they are a counterfeit to the three angels' message back in Revelation chapter 14. So this is, this is how we know what these three frogs, what their message is going to be. It's going to contradict the message of the three angels back in Revelation chapter 14. 
And so if you just go back and read chapter 14, the three angels' message is the everlasting gospel. It's about uh, our great God is the creator and also our great God, the hour of his judgment has come. And then the other angels, the other two angels, they come, they warn people not to take the mark of the beast. They warn that, that Babylon the great is going to fall. So we can know that, that these frogs, these, these demons will contradict the three angels' message. Church, that tells me it's very important to understand and live by the three angels' message, lest we be deceived. And so, as we we break all of this down, we begin to see that this conflict, that this battle has a lot more to do with what is happening uh, spiritually has has more of a, a spiritual conflict behind it rather than a physical battle behind it. And so John goes on as he's he's seeing this this battle that is getting ready to take place in uh, in verse fourteen, and he briefly pauses here before he gets to verse sixteen. He says, "Behold." This is Jesus really is speaking. Behold, I am coming quickly as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his, his shame. So these are actually the words of Jesus uh, back in Revelation, uh, back in Matthew chapter 24. He's warning his church to constantly be ready. He's taking a pause here to say, Please be aware. Don't don't be caught. Uh, don't be caught following a uh, Babylon. Don't be caught naked. Don't be caught uh, having been overcome by the enemy. No, you have to be constantly ready that you're not overcome by the enemy and you're not defeated by him. So Jesus tells tells them to watch. And I wish I had time to, to talk about just this one verse, but going back to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 will bring a lot of light on verse 15. And finally here in verse 16, he says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So this is the, this is the verse that so many people are anxious to understand. What is the battle of Armageddon? What are the nations? Is this going to be some great nuclear war, conflict between Israel and the United States and Russia and China on the other side uh, of the battlefield? And so people have have been curious. There's so many theories about, about this battle, and I wish we had time to really break it down, but we can look at it simply this way. The battle of Armageddon, takes us back to the conflict between Elijah the prophet and the false prophets back in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, why do I say that? Because the word Armageddon is a combination of two words, Har, which means mountain, and Megiddo, which is the valley of Megiddo or the valley of Jezreel, which is just east of, of Mount Carmel. And so th- this is the only place in all of the Bible that this location is given this name, or this name 
if you will, Armageddon shows up. It's the only place in the Bible where we see the word Armageddon. It's not in the Old Testament. There's, there is no place that is actually called in the Old Testament Armageddon. But there is the place Megiddo. And there, was a, there have been many decisive battles that, had, that have happened in that area. And one of the most important battles that happened in that area is actually on Mount Carmel. Now, when my wife and I went to Israel uh, last year in, in August, we actually went to Mount Carmel where, um, where Elijah battled the hundreds of false prophets of Baal. And so we, we were able to go up on that hill, on that mountain. They, they, a bus went up it, and we could see over into the valley of Megiddo. And indeed, it is a huge, there's a huge plain there. But there's no way you can fit millions of soldiers. There's no way you could have one decisive battle in that area. It just is not logical. But the battle that did happen, that is very important in that area, is, is between Elijah and these false prophets. And so what happened at that time, as many of us know and, and are from our Bible stories back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, that that is where Elijah called down fire from heaven. He called, where he, he prayed to God and God sent fire from heaven. Uh, to consume the sacrifice. Now, I want to pause here for a second to say that God in His mercy consumed that sacrifice. That fire that came down from heaven, it should have consumed the false prophets. It, could, it should have consumed Ahab. And it should have consumed the Israelites. But God in His mercy consumed the sacrifice instead. And that sacrifice represented our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is why I say that God, in, in His battle, in his, in, in his preparation for this final conflict, that God's motivation throughout the whole conflict has been a motivation of love, not selfishness, not pride, uh, and nothing of that sort. But his motivation has been love. And this, this echo back to Mount Carmel and the consuming of the sacrifice there helps us to understand God's motivation. But as we look back to Mount Carmel, as this place here, we see that the real issue that was to be resolved there once and for all on Mount Carmel was to identify the true God. Elijah says in verse 21, If the Lord, he is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And this will be the issue in the showdown at the battle of Armageddon in the last days. The battle will finally be resolved. The issue that Satan has raised at the beginning of the great controversy 
about who is really fit to run the universe, to be in charge of the universe. The issue about God's loving eternal character and the perfection of his holy law and the necessity for all of his beings to follow that law. Those issues will all be resolved at the final battle of Armageddon. That was the real uh, crux of the matter. That was the real problem that God was trying to deal with there on Mount Carmel. Who is the true God? And so as Satan masses his army and God prepares for battle, this will be the decisive blow to Satan and all of his forces. It's not a military battle, but the battle is for people's minds. Both God and Satan are preparing for the final conflict that will bring this great controversy to an end. And Christ is calling his people to prepare for the last battle. It is not a military battle, but it is an issue of loyalty and faith and obedience to God and his word. And I want to close with this question today. How are you fighting your daily conflicts? The daily conflicts that you face in your normal, everyday lives. Because that will make the difference of how we go into this final conflict as well. Remember, the way we prepare for battle determines its outcome. Making decisions based on love, truth, and righteousness is a difficult way to live, but it's God's way to live. The outcome may not be what we want, but it is what is right. And God is calling all of his people today to choose him, to choose Christ, to choose selflessness, to choose the cross, to choose heaven over, over Babylon. And I, it is my hope and my prayer that that is your decision today. May God bless you and happy Sabbath.